Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I'm Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, we're coming to you after a very light weekend of professional boxing, uh, although we did see a pair of upsets in televised main events. The names of the fighters involved opened the door extremely wide for some lame puns, which is... Unfortunately for everyone listening, very much up our alley. Uh, we had Lee Wood scoring an upset 12th round knockout of Shu Kan. We had heavyweight trial horse Johnny Rice shocking unbeaten Michael Coffey by TKO in the fifth. Eric, I'm just going to put a ball on the tee here for you. Uh, <laughs> as you traffic heavily in dad jokes, uh, I did give you a heads up a short while back. We were going to talk about this. Um, I gave you a few minutes to think it over. I hate myself for saying this, but go ahead. Give me your best slash worst horrible tweets about each fighter that you would have written had you been tweeting about these fights live. Uh, and I will rate them with the volume of my groans. <laughs> okay. All right. Here goes. You ready? Yeah. Zhu can. More like Zhu can't. Am I right? <laughs> yes. I'm surprised somebody didn't already do that. But maybe they did. Maybe they did. Maybe they did. All right. All right. Uh, maybe I can top it here. It's hard to knock wood coming off a win like that. <laughs> That's almost clever. Almost. That's almost. All right. Clever. I'll take I'll take almost clever. Okay. All right. Here we go. What an upset by Johnny Rice. That result really went against the grain. It's oh, a thinker. <laughs> that's actually almost a thinker. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. I'm going to bring it home now. Coffee must have been decaf. Ooh. Little obvious, that's, little obvious. That's, that's the winner slash loser there. <laughs> They're all losers, let's be honest. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, I asked for that. I, I knew better than to encourage you, but went ahead and did it anyway. Um, uh, the sad thing is, uh, it was just your birthday. Uh, happy belated birthday. Thank you. Um, which means you're that little bit older, and hard as it may be to believe, the dad jokes are just going to come that much faster <laughs> and, well, or slower, more often, shall we say, and more easily uh, than they have done even to this point. One dreads to imagine if social media is still a thing in 10 years and we haven't just destroyed ourselves as a society as a consequence, <laughs> I dread to think what the Raskin dad joke timeline is going to be like. <laughs> I guess what I'm most curious to find out, uh, you know, hopefully I'm still a good 15 years or so away from this, is, is whether... Once one is a granddad, one still tells dad jokes. Are there granddad jokes? Is is that separate, uh, or are are will the dad jokes continue? Will it stop? I don't know. We'll have to. Everyone will have to wait on pins and needles for fifteen the years. Grand, the granddad jokes probably meander a lot more. They, that's true. They won't be quite as concise. The the ones They're I just laid on you were all quick one liners. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. Um. With the Olympic Games dominating the sporting landscape for another couple of weeks, uh, there hasn't been much happening, uh, as you could tell, in the world of professional boxing. We will be getting back to more of a normal podcast next week when we preview the August 14th Showtime Championship boxing card featuring Guillermo Rigandau versus John Riel Casemiro. But that doesn't mean that we have nothing to look forward to on this episode. I will be answering the top five challenge that Eric laid down for me last week and offering my selections of which U.S. Olympic boxing teams produce the best batch of professional careers. And our guest... We'll be boxing judge Tom Shrek. So we'll have some interesting questions to ask him that we don't normally get a chance to ask a guest. But uh, first, let's take a quick look at the news that has unfolded over this past week, shall we? Yep. And, and there's no real singular news main event this week, although the closest thing to one is an update to part of last week's news main event. The purported Canelo Alvarez Caleb Plant bout, which was supposedly on for September 18th, is now off of September 18th and possibly off entirely after the two sides couldn't agree to terms. Further reports suggest Canelo may switch his attention to Dmitry Bivol for that date, or possibly some guy named Gennady Golovkin, uh, or he might just not fight in September and instead fight only three times this year instead of having a shot at four fights. Um, 
extending this news main event conversation to include other developments regarding fights either being made or not made. A few other things here. Uh, Showtime has announced the undercard to the August 28th Showtime Championship boxing card in Phoenix, headlined by local star David Benavidez against Jose Uzcategui. In the co-main, David's brother Jose will make his ring return almost three years after losing a title challenge to Terrence Crawford. He takes on Francisco Emmanuel Torres of Argentina at 154 pounds. While in the opener, undefeated Carlos Castro, also from Phoenix, faces Oscar Escandon in 122-pound action. Uh, Vasily Lomachenko cryptically tweeted December 11th late last week, which Dan Rayfield reports means that Loma will likely be facing Richard Comey on ESPN as the Ukrainian continues to try to beat Teofimo Lopez opponents more impressively than Lopez did. Uh, Eddie Hearn said that we may finally get to see an all-British welterweight clash between Amir Khan and Kel Brook some seven years after it first started getting talked up. And, uh, well... Suffice to say, it isn't as hot now as it was then. Uh, And speaking of fights that would have meant more about seven years ago, uh, this one isn't just talk. It's been announced. Robert Guerrero versus Victor Ortiz has been added to the Errol Spence Manny Pacquiao undercard on August 21st. Lots to get your reaction to there, Kieran. But let's start with the 34-year-old Ortiz against the 38-year-old Guerrero. How pumped are you for that one? I had to double check to make sure it wasn't some kind of delayed April Fool's joke, actually, Mm. (laughs) that somebody hadn't put a false thing out there that was getting picked up. But there we are. It is real, apparently. It's happening. It's a thing. It will be ugly. It will be sloppy. It will be exciting while it lasts. And it will end with Guerrero knocking out Ortiz. Mm. There you go. Uh, That seems reasonably confident prediction. Uh, What else? Uh, I like the Showtime undercard. Very happy to see uh, Jose Benavidez return after Mm. a long time out. Um, Lomachenko Comey. Good fight. Happy to see it. Look, Lama's going to have his work cut out to beat uh, what Tiafema Lopez <laughs> yes. did to this guy. Uh, Lopez, in case you don't remember, uh, scoring a KO2 of Comey, one of his most impressive performances on his way to um, uh, being the champion of the lightweight division. But Comey did remind us for this recent stoppage of Jackson Marinas that he's actually really a quality fighter. Uh, and probably not quality enough for Lomachenko, but... Um, a very good, tough outing for, for Lama until he can get a, a Lopez rematch. As for Canelo plan, shrug. Um, I, I guess, look, we thought about making it the standalone main event news last week. We decided against it because it was not definitive. Right. And yes, we did right, because it's clear there are talks. Those talks were very advanced, but nothing's done until it's done. And it wasn't done. So uh, we'll just see what happens next. Um, so the rest of the news, well, as I'm sure you already know, uh, Saturday, this last Saturday, scheduled bout between Conor Ben and Adrian Granados was postponed after Ben tested positive for COVID. Talking of COVID, Bob Aram has been talking some more about the outbreak that delayed Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder 3, uh, referring to the fact that Fury <laughs> admitted getting his first COVID shot, but not his second. Aram said, they told me he was vaccinated. I assumed it was two shots. Who gets vaccinated and doesn't get the second shot? He only had one shot. I never knew that he hadn't gotten the second one until he got sick. I really screamed at all of them. It was a complete effort. The people in the gym, I mean, we had no controls. There was absolutely no precaution taking. Uh, a lot of it was our fault. We should have been the adult in the room. Um, so Bob's happy. Uh, sticking with <laughs> top rank, uh, they'll be making history on August 14th when Christina Poncher and Michaela Mayer become the first all-female announced team to call a fight when they call the international broadcast of the triple header headlined by the third Joshua Franco Andrew Maloney fight. Congratulations to them and much deserved, especially Christina, who's been a real pro uh, behind the mic for years now. And uh, British lightweight Luke Campbell announced his retirement. The 2012 Olympic bronze medalist challenged Jorge Linares, Vasily Lamachenko and Ryan Garcia falling short each time Retires with a record of 20 and four with 16 KOs after a very good career. Uh, Eric, your thoughts on any or all of the above? I'll go the all route. Uh, a quick word or two about each of these items. Uh, in the reverse order that you read them out, uh, I'll first start by saying good for Luke Campbell. I hope it sticks. Uh, that's the caveat with every boxer's retirement, uh, especially, you know, one timed like this where, you know, there may be starting to slip, but still clearly could keep fighting. Uh, we'd be happy to see a guy like Campbell retire and stay retired. But boxing history suggests that outcome is probably an underdog. But uh, if he does stay retired, good for him. 33 is a fine age to stop swapping punches. He had a fine pro career, even if, uh, as you noted, he 
couldn't quite win the big one and grab a major title. Um, I love that history-making all-female broadcast team. Um, I believe you know Christina Poncher better than I do. I've, I've mm. just kind of met her in passing, but she's one of those people that everyone in boxing seems to like. Uh, yeah. And uh, Michaela Mayer, for what I've seen, is a good talker. She might have a future in broadcasting. So I- I'm looking forward to hopefully getting access to that feed and hearing them together. Uh, Aram and Fury, most of Aram's quote is just Bob venting and pointing fingers, but (laughs) I do like the way he ended it. We should have been the adult in the room. Good that Top Rank is taking some accountability. Um, As for Fury, I'll use this platform to tease and sell my other freelance boxing outlet. Uh, I write a quarterly column for Ringside Seat Magazine, as you know, Kieran, and my Mm -hmm. soon-to-be-published column is about Fury with the hot take that his decline may be coming sooner and more precipitously mm. than people realize. There's mm. the tease. You got to cross promote, Kieran. Uh, That's right. Speaking of which, everybody follow me on Twitter at Eric Raskin. Uh, okay, uh, and back to the news items. The last one, Connor Ben. I could not find any definitive answer about whether he's been vaccinated, so right. I don't know whether to label him foolish or unlucky. But that fight being scrapped sure did make for a slow weekend in boxing. So I blame Connor Ben and his COVID for our dad jokes opening to the show. That's all his fault. There you go. Exactly. All right. You mentioned uh, following you on Twitter. That leads us into the tweet of the week. Okay. Uh, And this week relates somewhat to one of the news items. It comes from our friend Dan Canobio, who tweeted last week, waking up to learn that Canelo plan is off, but Riddick Bowe Lamar Odom is on. In capital letters, hashtag boxing. <laughs> um, and yes, it's kind of funny and also incredibly sad and really should not be happening. Uh, we mentioned a while back that Riddick Bowe, of all people, appear to be getting in on this whole over-the-hill exhibition slash actual boxing uh, train. Uh, it now transpires that Bowe will face former NBA star Odom on October 2nd in Miami. Uh, look, the good news about this is he's facing Odom, who... It's all a bit of an embarrassing situation, but he's highly unlikely to inflict too much damage on him. The bad news is it's Riddick Bowe, and Mm. any damage is too much damage at this point uh, for for Riddick, who's just horribly punchy and has been for years. But yeah, I thought Dan's tweet perfectly captured the melancholy and the sadness and the kind of hint of resignation that we all have when it comes to boxing right now. Yeah, this is 100% sad. I don't see uh, anything sort of fun or funny about this particular one. And, and not just on the bow side, uh, Lamar Odom, I haven't followed it super closely, but I know that he, first of all, he was married to or dated a Kardashian, which suggests uh, some possible mental failings there right off, <laughs> right out of the gate. But, um, you know, he also had... I believe some drug issues, some health scares. I think I remember him going into a coma or something like that briefly at at some point. Uh, This was several years ago, but still, this is a guy who's had his own issues. So Uh neither of these guys really uh, are people that you want to see taking punches. I guess I'll say uh, just about about Bo, uh, that you use the word punchy, and I'm not sure if it's more like what we discussed with Jackie Callen about Tommy Hearns, that his speech is slurred, mm-hmm, but the brain is mm-hmm. still okay. Might be the case, might not. I'm not an expert on what's going on in, in Rick's head there, but he definitely, his speech is not good. So yeah, uh, hashtag boxing is right. <laughs> Dan nailed it. This is pretty much the the very worst that, uh, that this sport we love has to offer, unfortunately. Yes, but... Just when we think we found a bottom, there's always <laughs> another one. So I hesitate to apply very worst to anything in boxing, okay. but that's got to be getting there. We're, 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 we're at least there. close to scraping the bottom with this yeah, one. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, hopefully there's time actually for it to not happen. Um, that would be we nice. Shall see. That would be very nice. All right. Uh, it is time for this week's guest. He has been a professional boxing judge for 20 years, making his bow with a small card at the Civic Center in Niagara Falls, New York, in July 2001, and most recently judging Juran Ancajas' win over Jonathan Javier Rodriguez. He is also an author of mystery fiction, with this series featuring investigator and pro boxer Duffy Dombrowski now stretching to five books, <laughs> I believe. And most importantly... He is a lover of basset hounds, several of whom allow him to sit on their furniture at home. Uh, Tom Shrek, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. 
Well, I don't know how to live up to that introduction, uh, fellas, but I will do my best. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I'm tempted to pivot into an entire interview all about Basset Hounds instead of boxing, but uh, but now we'll, we'll we'll stick with boxing. And um, people talk about how if a referee is doing a good job, you don't notice him. Um, something similar is true for judges. Uh, you, you don't really want boxing fans to know who you are. Uh, if you hand in your card and there's no controversy, you rarely get praised for doing a good job. But hand in a card with which fans and especially viewers at home disagree, and you can have a target on your back for the rest of your career. Which begs the question, Tom, why do it? What 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 is the attraction of doing one of the most thankless jobs in pro sports? Well, you know, sometimes when uh, I'm on my stool waiting uh, for the introductions to get done, I'm asking myself that same question. Um, <laughs> and the uh, corny but absolutely true answer to that is I love the sport. And and I know you guys do as well. And to be that close to it and to figure into it is such an honor and a privilege. And uh, also it's a, such a rush. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a sports fan in general, but I, I just can't find anything more exciting than the moments just before a big fight. Um, when two guys are about to get at it and, um, that's to me is the pinnacle of the sport. And it's why every time there's a good football game or a great tennis match, what do the announcers say? Well, this is just like a championship fight. Um, and we have that in our sport. So I, I love the game. Uh, I've messed around with it uh, in combat sports most of my life, and it uh, it's just a privilege and an, an excitement, and it's a real challenge to do it right, to watch it and to look for sometimes sometimes the nuance and sometimes the subtleties of it. Uh, most of the time, it's right there in front of you, but it is um, it can be as and you guys cover this quite a bit. It can be the simplest thing in the world or it can be the most complex and nuanced thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's a long way around saying I, I love the challenge, I love the sport, uh, and I respect it a, a ton. How, how do you begin setting out on the path to be a judge? Like how much of an apprenticeship is there? Well, uh, usually, and it varies from uh, state to state and country and sanctioning body, but generally they want you to uh, have uh, – had amateur experience as a judge, usually five or more years. Then uh, if you're lucky enough to get accepted by a commission, if, if, if a commission is looking for judges, you start out with uh, four rounders, uh, usually nondescript, very far away from cameras. Uh, yeah. And if you don't screw those up, maybe you go on to six rounders and eight rounders. Uh, so it's, um, you know, there's training involved. But when the lights go on and, and you're charged with evaluating a fight, you have to perform. And, you know, everybody, you know, everybody's entitled to a bad night. But in our, our line of work, not too many, not too many right. bad nights and certainly not early on in your career. Right. Right. Do you, do you have any idea how many professional bouts you've judged at this point? Uh, I think somewhere between. You know, 500 and 700 at this point, mm-hmm. I think. And, 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 you know, if you ask me the, uh, and how many of those are at the championship level, uh, <laughs> lately it's, it seems like all of them, depending on how you quantify a championship with all the different sanctioning bodies and sub- right. subtitles, interim titles, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've been at it. Actually, you guys ripped me off by three years in my. Uh, did I? I <laughs> Blame Box Rack. Yeah, that's right. In uh, Colony, New York, at a minor league baseball field. But uh, yeah, that's uh, so. Wow, that is the ultimate sort of okay, kids, start here kind of a fight at a minor league baseball. That's definitely as far away from the cameras as you can get. <laughs> you know, but there's with the way things are now, there's fewer and fewer club shows. So in some ways, it's harder for a new judge to break in because there's less mm. small cards around. You know, mm. you you know, and and. You know, you're not going to debut somebody, or it's tough. You know, under the you know national TV or pay-per-view fight or even a card, that's a tough place to put somebody for the first yeah, time. Definitely. So, in in my first question, I sort of hinted at the disconnect sometimes between the fans and the judges. Um, what mm-hmm. what is the one thing, or or if you prefer, what are several things 
you wish that fans watching fights on TV understood better about how different it is to watch a fight as a fan versus watching it as a judge? Uh, that's that's an excellent question. Probably the most common one we get. Uh, and you know what? You know what's the adage? You got to know your audience. I think the folks who are listening to this podcast aren't casual fans. They're mm-hmm. folks who know the game. So, um, you know, the, the the simple response is that you know the you have to knock out the champion to win. Well, everybody knows that. And uh, right. sometimes what judges will say is. Uh, you know, it, it's totally different in person than it is on TV. And I think that's overstated quite a bit. I mm. think it's, I think it's about, and you, and you guys are ringside a lot. I think it's about 10% different on TV than it is in person. Um, I, what fans, I would love fans to try scoring fights without the sound on, on their TV mm-hmm. in a rigid back chair, uh, yeah. With no sound, no statistics, no CompuBox numbers, uh, no graphs of where the body shots landed, and just write their score down for 12 rounds uh, yeah. without a cold beverage in their hand or a basset hound on their lap, and <laughs> see what see what the scores they come up with are like. And you may find out that there's a whole lot less controversy in pro boxing. Not not no controversy, and not no. And I'm not saying there aren't poor decisions but if you score a fight like that first of all it's not that much fun it's uh it's right it's it involves a lot of concentration and a lot of tedium uh but that's what we have to do we also we have no feedback i think most fans know that we don't unless you're unless you're in the bubble at mohegan sun and you can hear morrow and steve <laughs> commentary eight, eight feet away you don't get any feedback um so that's i guess that's a long way around your question, Eric, but I think it's um, try scoring uh, a fight with the sound off and totally concentrating for those 180 seconds around and see what it feels like and see what your score comes out to. And I think, I think that may take care of a fair amount of perceived controversies. Right, right. And, and you mentioned the, 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 the rare instance where you're actually hearing the broadcasters, but I'm curious um, about your view on the, the broadcasters in general. You know, it's been about 35 years or so now that unofficial scorers have been a part of most broadcast teams. Mm-hmm. Do you feel they've generally educated viewers about how judging works or, or, or do they detract in a sense because everyone's being fed one person's score and if it doesn't match up with the official judges' scores, it, it can sometimes manufacture a controversy? Well, I... I... I, I think you can go both ways, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, you guys, you have Steve and, uh, Steve, I think Steve's scores are excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm only saying that because I think the last five broadcasts, him and I agreed exactly on scores. <laughs> Obviously the man's a right. man genius. Um, and if it wasn't for Harold, would, would the average public know the, the four criterion for scoring? Right. You know, if you're a boxing fan, those are etched in your brain and, and you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say what a what a sweet man Harold was. I, yeah. I, I'll tell you, my first show on that network, uh, I was at was at the Javits Center in New York, and I'm sitting there ringside by myself, way way too early. Harold comes in, I had never met him before, and he shouts across the ring, "Hey, Tom, how's it going? Did you take the train down? That's how I used to travel. Like I was the best friend." <laughs> That's that, that moment, such a Harold myself, moment. I'm in. You know, I'm in. Harold yeah. Letterman just talked to me. You know? Right. So, uh, so, yeah. so the TV guys, your guys are very good. I think most of the networks they're 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 pretty on target. You know, sometimes I hear stuff that makes me wince. Like they'll say, "Well, you know that that flurry in the last 15 seconds that's gonna that's gonna uh, fool the judges," or this loud crowd, partisan crowd is gonna is gonna influence. But you know this most of the judges, it's not our first rodeo. I right. mean, we, we know when somebody's trying to steal around, we know when the crowd is cheering for blocked punches and all those types of things. So I, I, those, those sort of comments sometimes make me wince, but you got to fill up the air, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and sort of that sort of feeds into this next question. You know, there, we always hear Eric and I uh, as, as podcasters and, and I'm sure you've heard, and, uh, 
all kinds of people have different ideas about how to quote unquote fix judging, right? There's we should have extra judges ringside or OK, we have some judges sitting ringside. We have some other judges watching on monitors. Uh, we should put them in lifeguard chairs so they can look above the ropes, uh, all this kind of stuff. Are there any changes at all that you would like to see perhaps to, to improve or or improve the clarity of, of judging or do you really feel sure. that or do you feel that the way it's set up is actually pretty good? Well, you know, what's, what I've always found kind of curious is the, the 10 point must system. Uh, yep. And if you if you went around close, you get a 10 nine round. If you went around uh, pretty clearly, it's a 10 nine round. You don't go to 10 eight until uh, the term we usually use is total dominance or a knockdown or the ropes save somebody from falling down or somebody, again, one of the terms we always use, uh, battered from pillar to post. What if in the scoring system, you know, we liberally went, to, you know, 10, 8, 10, 7, 10, 6, um, based on, you know, the, the level of uh, how much a fighter uh, won around. So that, that's a thought. But that's not how it's done. So that's, you know, I mean, in baseball, would we say it, the game would be interesting, more interesting if we gave them four, four strikes? You know, I mean, it's just, uh, <laughs> right. you know, I don't, I don't know if we want to go down that path. Right. Um, you know, there's three judges. So if, if a judge has a, a, a bad night, it should be okay. This, the right guy should mm -hmm. still win, right? And you got, you know, two other judges. Now, can three judges have a poor night? Sure. Can you assign three judges who maybe need a little bit more training? Sure. All those things can happen. Um, but, you know, I, I think that with the system, you know, what, what the amateurs, are the amateurs still using five, five judges? And, you know, it's not like they're not without controversy from time right, to time. Right, you know? so. right. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I sort of had it as a follow-up question, if you didn't mention it, that that the whole perhaps a more liberal use of 10-8 kind of rounds. It's one thing that I've always thought about, like maybe it would help the disconnect because sometimes people don't appreciate necessarily that you're, you are scoring in a championship fight. You're not scoring a fight. You're scoring 12 mini fights. And um, and I, th I think it's kind of interesting. You know, sometimes people see a guy like battering the other guy for three rounds, especially if they're the last three rounds. <laughs> and don't understand how he could lose that fight. I do wonder if sometimes if maybe a, if you guys had a little bit more latitude there in the in the ten plus uh, uh, system, that it would be a little bit different. Well, you know, you know, Karen, what's really interesting, and I think most fans get this, um, but like I remember doing a, a championship fight, and I won't mention which one it was, and it was very very close. But one one guy seemed to do just a tiny bit more each round. So the score comes out lopsided and you get a you get kind of right. a moan from the crowd and a moan from the announcers. Wow, that's certainly, you know, that's, well, you could have, and you guys know this, and I'm guessing most yeah. of your listeners do, you could have a very, very tight fight that has a very wide margin. Mm. Uh, yeah. And that's just the way things go. Yeah. 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 yeah, and well, so I actually want to ask you about um, a fight that is tricky to score in sort of in sort of a reverse kind of way, where it's not necessarily uh, the fight seems closer than it ends up, and you have wide scores at the end, but rather the fights where each round is very close, and you're really struggling to make up your mind when you're going through a fight like that. I, I guess I should ask, has that, has that ever happened? A fight where you're thinking to yourself, uh Oh, these rounds are all really close. This is going to be contra controversial, but assuming that that has happened, what's going through your mind? Is there like mounting pressure for you when you just know <laughs> you're struggling to, to pick a winner in a lot of rounds? Well, yeah, it, it has happened to me. And I think it's happened to uh, every judge that's uh, done, done a lot of fights. Um, well, okay. So here's, Here's what they'll tell you at the trainings. They'll say, concentrate as hard as you can. Don't let anything influence you. Um, make sure your your uh, your eyes are focused. Well, over the years, what I've learned to do, and I I teach uh, psychology in college on a part time basis. One of the things that really helped me is just having um, a sense of mindfulness and being aware of what your thoughts are and being aware of what's around you. So when you, you know, when you're doing a fight and it's razor thin close, but 
say you've given the first six rounds to one guy, even though it's razor thin close, I check in with myself. And I, like you were saying there, Eric, I think, hmm, yeah, I feel a little anxiety. Okay, now <laughs> get back to the business of judging. And the thing is, is we get evaluated on, on a round-by-round round basis, not the ultimate decision. So, you know, you may think, well, at the end, wow, geez, that's great. I, um, I had the same score as, as my partners there. That's great. But if, if seven of your rounds were different on your way to getting there, the commission notes that, the sanctioning bodies note that, and they go, out. Oh, he was out of an agreement uh, seven times. <clears throat> you know, that's not so great. Or what's going on there? So I try with, with all different things that might influence a, a judge to just be mindful. I mean, if, if, if you say to yourself, I really got to concentrate, I can't let anything divert my attention. Well, that's kind of like saying, no matter what, don't picture a pink elephant right now. And that's the first <laughs> thing that comes to your mind. That's the way human minds work. So instead of doing that, which I think creates more anxiety, I like to uh, be aware of my thoughts and be aware of my emotions and say, oh, look at it. Isn't that interesting? And then I'll get back to the matter of hand and see who's who's doing more damage in this fight. But so you, so you mentioned that you, you know, you are aware if you've got it six, nothing for one guy, that, that was something I was curious about is whether, you know, whether you're trained to at the end of the round, you forget all about that round and you're not keeping track of your score versus you do keep a bit of a running tally in your head as the fight goes on that you kind of, you know, roughly how you, who, who you've been favoring in the fight and how you're scoring is, is that right? That you are, keeping tally in your head well yeah well the the stock answer is you you score the round you forget about it and get on to your next one mm-hmm. but you're doing a, a a fight and you realize you've just given six rounds to the red corner i i'd be hard pressed to somehow admit that i wouldn't be aware of that so right. yeah I, I think i think we all kind of know now when it's a close fight back and forth and you're entering the 12th round it's often the case you don't know how your your card's going to come out. Gotcha. Mm. You know, when they, when they do the final final decision. Right. Um, yeah, your answer that kind of feeds into this next question. Um, we recently had a controversial decision with Jamel Charlo and, and Brian Castaño. And that fight, which wound up a, a draw with one scorecard that was very different from the rest, reminded me a lot of the Gennady Golovkin-Canelo Alvarez first fight, which was scored a draw with one scorecard very much different from the rest. And in both cases, a draw is a perfectly good result, but folks were really focused on that outlier score. Um, mm. And I assume in general terms, without wanting you to you know, talk about specifics there, as a judge, and you kind of just touched on this, if you're involved in a decision and it turns out that fans in the arena and particularly those at home disagree with it, I imagine you are much more wanting to be part of a decision in which all three of you essentially see the same score, even if you're apparently the only three people in the world who see that, as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to being that one judge with the outlier score, right? I, that is it partly you, you mentioned how you how you're you're sort of scored in relation to to your to your colleagues and is part of the goal like, hey, I want to get out of this seeing at least something of the same kind of fight that my two colleagues are seeing. Well, yeah, I guess I'd give that a qualified yes. I mean, if, if, you, okay. if you and two other competent judges, you know, have a similar score, that on the face of it would be a good thing. But, you know, a sample, I'm not an expert in statistics. I fudged my way through it in college. But <laughs> a sample size of three isn't, isn't really statistically significant, right? So you could have two mm. judges have a bad night. You could be on target. And, you know, where, where sometimes you, you may see that more is like on undercard fights and, and on smaller cards where you might have, you know, uh, an, an experienced judge and, and two very inexperienced judges. Mm. And if the experienced judge is way out in left field uh, mm. or, or not in corresponding with the two inexperienced judges, eh, you, might, you might have some pause to think about that. Um, mm. But it, and so... I think human nature is you don't want to be the one way off to the side. Now, when other smart boxing people evaluate a fight and they agree with you, but the other two judges didn't, I mean, that there's, I guess there's something to that. The thing is we, we all want to get it right. Not the, you know, darn it. The, the, the guy who 
who lived like a monk for two and a half months training and right. cutting weight and all that. They want, you want the right guy to win. Um, and, and it's great if, if that lines up all, you know, I think one of the fights I did, um, I, I think it was, uh, Kodo and Judah. And I remember, uh, the writer, uh, Michael Woods pointed out that all three judges scored every single round the same. And boy, that, 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 that was like a sense of pride. That was really kind of cool. Um, and you know, an important fight and it, it, we, you know, apparently we got it right, you know? So yeah, I think there's, I think there's a desire to not be alone, but it's more of a desire to get it right. You know, um, something, if you, if you are way off, uh, way out of sync with the other two, it, it is, it is, it should give you pause to think and watch it again. And, uh, maybe you come out going, yeah, I, I I'm okay. Or maybe you watch and go, mm, you know, not my best night. Right. Well, in terms of those extreme outlier scorecards, like the examples that, that Kieran mentioned, when we get those totally inexplicable ones, fans or, or people mm-hmm. in the media will say, well, it's either corruption or incompetence. It has to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. How do you feel mm-hmm. when you hear that sort of framing trotted out? You know, not about you, but just about any fellow judge. Well, you know, look, on on Thursday of this week, I'm going to the Yankees game, and I'm gonna I'm a passionate Yankee fan, and I'm gonna be in the third deck, and I'm gonna be yelling at the home plate umpire that the, <laughs> the hit the corner. You know, um, so. And the other thing you guys noticed, uh, I'm a, uh, noted that I'm a, a fiction writer. And one of the things, you, know, you guys are both uh, accomplished writers. Good writing always has lots of conflict in it. So, you know, TV, you know, how exciting would it be if it came to the decision and the three announcers said, yeah, well, that's, that's a pretty good decision. You know, next. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it makes better television if there's outrage and controversy and all that. So I guess I'm running around the question. Um, you know, I, corruption, I can honestly say I've never seen anything that would even hint at that. Uh, I've seen judges have a, have what I would consider an off night. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I've had off nights. Um, does that make somebody incompetent? I, I, I don't know. If, if, if there's three judges and the right, right uh, combatant wins, then I think the system works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, they, you know, it's on that judge to go study and do better the next time. Gotcha. All right. All right. Well, finishing with a question uh, about uh, a time that at least one person said you had an off night, uh, put you in the spotlight, uh, thinking specifically when a, a certain former boxer and a former Showtime analyst took issue with a card that you handed in for one of his fights. And never mind that it was actually a perfectly fine scorecard in the view of most of us. He decided to take offense and to not just call you out once, but to keep doing so for a while afterward. What is that like to, to be in the crosshairs like that and, and to have a prominent figure target you? Do, you? do you take it personally? Do you have an emotional reaction? Well, again, just like I'll be yelling at the umpires at Yankee Stadium on Thursday, it's it's if you're going to have thin skin, find something else to do with your Saturday night. <laughs> right? uh, this is uh, this is how it goes. The other thing is fighters, you know, they go away for 10 or 12 weeks. They live like a monk. They deny themselves. They train hard. There's all sorts of, uh, you know, contentious press conferences. They fight 12 rounds in the most demanding sport. And then Somebody sticks a microphone in their face. Says, what do you think? <laughs> yep. I, I, yeah. I don't know if we should judge how people respond in in that moment. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, you know, I think that's how it, that goes, you know. Um, again, also flesh and blood, too. So, uh, but again, if, if you're going to have thin skin, uh, I don't know if you're in the right at the right vocational choice. You know? <laughs> right. To, well, to, to that end, uh, in terms of how thick or thin your skin is, do you make a point of staying off social media sometimes after uh, after, after you work a fight card? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And again, it comes with the territory. And, right. uh, you know, if you're going to look at social media, you're going to find people that, that, you know, uh, question your intelligence and uh, everything else about you. And, and that's social media. This is 2021. 
that's how that stuff goes. Uh, so, you know, um, you go into that and, you know, sometimes it can be kind of amusing, uh, but to seek validation <laughs> with social media, <laughs> man, you got, you got more, more need for finding a good therapist. If that's what if you're trying, trying to find validation in social media, that's probably not the, the way to go, you know? <laughs> right. Hey, there's one more question that suddenly occurred to me to ask before we let you go and listening to your answers you know you guys have basically the best seats in the house but you can't really enjoy it right <laughs> because you're sweating and focusing all the way through two-part question generally speaking at the end of a fight night especially if you're doing the main event how exhausted slashed amped are you at the same time often and do you ever have a situation where you realize as you're scoring the fight, damn, this is a good fight, and then you can't wait to actually get home and watch it again on TV so you can actually enjoy the fight? Uh, yes to both of those. Um, walking, you know, you know, let's say you got a, a, a main event at the Barclays. Um, I mean, I, I walk back to my hotel room through Park Slope. You go up to my, my room and uh, stare at the ceiling. <laughs> you know, till, till well into the early morning. Um, yeah. And even that's even if it went real well, it's, it's mm. just the excitement, the bright lights and the stakes involved. I mean, yeah. God in heaven, it's some of these, you know, if you're doing a, 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 a title eliminator or somebody's next payday is going to be in seven figures. And if they lose, mm. man, you know, that's that, that's life changing. So there's a lot, a lot, on, a lot at stake there. The second part of your question is very interesting. It you, You're so fixated, or you should be so fixated on getting the score right, you really can't kick back and admire the, the artistry of what's going on. I mean, I obviously, I, most of us judges love the game. And, and I mean, I, I, I can watch over and over and over the fights of Hector Camacho or Pernell Whitaker uh, and just study and look at the oh look at the pivot look at this that you can't do that when you're scoring a fight you know you can't sit back and go ooh and ah and you know and all those types of things you have to you have to be locked in you know right so so yeah. you so we'll never hear you yell a mamma mia uh, when there's a big knockout in front of you <laughs> while you're judging a fight you know you know one of the things I I was thinking about before this was you know sometimes. I think you asked it in the first question and I got talking and talking. And I never mentioned it. One of the things that looks so different uh, from a judge's seat and may even be different from where you guys sit. Cause you guys are usually like 10 feet behind us body punches. Yeah. I, there's times I've seen, if you've watched somebody like um, uh, triple G or Miguel Cotto hit somebody in the body. I, I mean, I've heard myself, you know, guffaw, uh, you know, ringside. <laughs> like, oh, cause, um, but I, go home watching on TV and you kind of go, Hey, you landed a body shot there. And I'm mm. thinking if that body shot landed on me, I, I would never go to the bathroom the right way again <laughs> yeah. in my life. Uh, it's just, um, and that, that, that doesn't seem to translate on television, yeah. you know? So sometimes I'll go home and I'll look for the, Oh, remember that killer body shot. And it's just the body shot. And you mm. go, where, where did that go? You know, it loses something from three dimensional to two dimensions. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you said because I, I, I thought. I mean, Eric and I have both been like on the ring apron. You know, Eric's been an unofficial scorer, and you know, mm -hmm. I was there for a couple of HBO fights. And yeah, it, it feels that ring apron is very different from even just a few rows back, like you said, in ringside. Sometimes mm -hmm. some of the the force of some of those punches comes across much better, mm. I think. And and you know, the word awesome is so overused in our culture, but the awe of uh, mm. you know, the other thing is, I, I think I think folks sometimes think a boxing glove is this really protective you know device that's going to ensure that no injury occurs and every time i'm at a gloving station i pick up a glove just to remind myself and they're an eight ounce glove a 10 ounce glove that's about as much padding over the knuckles as a ski mitten and mm. um when somebody takes you know and, and i've heard you guys talk about the the conflict in the sport of both the, the beauty and the tragedy of it and yeah. the, when punches land Oh my goodness. And, and you just think, you know, I, when, when we talk about other sports and we talk about bravery and overcoming adversity, I, I always just, you know, kind of 
wryly smile and say, well, in my sport, it's a little bit different. (laughs) You don't, you don't, you don't play boxing, you know, and and sure that, that, that long tennis match was grueling, but nobody was punching Djokovic in the face while he was (laughs) being challenged to hit his backhand. You know, his, his eye wasn't shut during that period. And, and, And that's something, you know, I had, I had one, exhibition fight as an amateur fighter and I had a, a handful of karate fights and when you when they get ready to say go and you notice the little weakness in your legs from nervousness it it's always been a good lesson for me and I hate when I hear a crowd cheer a fighter you yeah. know a four round unskilled fighter or a or a washed up fighter who's you know, and somebody jeers a fighter or, or mocks somebody who just got knocked down, I, I have no tolerance for that at all. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. Hey, look, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been really informative. I hope listeners have enjoyed it. It's great to get a, a judge's perspective. It's good to, rem- good to remind ourselves that you all are human beings out there, too. I think that's easily forgotten. Well, you know, right after this uh, airs, I'm going to go check social media and see what everybody thought of it. <laughs> That's smart. I'm sure everything will be positive. <laughs> guys, thanks for having me. It was a, it was it was a real thrill. And and I'll say this: you guys are uh, you guys are popular in the officiating community because you're you're even reporting. Uh, oh, and I, I, I say that total sincerity is that you guys and the and the Showtime team are. Uh, Pretty, pretty doggone fair when it when it comes to evaluating us. So uh, we appreciate that. Thanks so Thank much, you, Tom. Tom. Really appreciate hearing that. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take care, guys. All right. Our thanks again to Tom. That was both informative and fun, uh, which is a nice combo. Um, all right. Let's conclude the show with this week's top five list. Uh, I pegged your assignment to current events. The Olympics are ongoing. So I asked you, Karen to rank the top five U.S. Olympic boxing teams from 1960 to present, except present didn't include this current team or the 2016 team. So from 1960 to 2012, and you were to rank them based on how they did as pros. Uh, So you have 14 teams to choose from. I wanted your top five. I am very curious to hear where you landed on this. So take it away. I took a slightly different approach to this week's uh, challenge. Uh, I don't know what prompted me to do this, but there you go. Um, I am what I am. Um, (laughs) Instead of it just being a, oh, that feels like that team's better than that team or so forth, so on and so forth. I went through all the different teams since 1960 uh, and assigned its members points Hmm. based on their professional achievements. So So you got points for fighting for a title winning a title, uh, extra points for being like an undisputed or lineal champion, being a Hall of Famer or being an all-time great. Um, I recognize that there's some subjectivity in there determining who is an all-time great, although I think all the ones that were kind of leap out at you are fairly obvious uh, in this case. Um, I also recognize there was a little bit of unfairness. So by assigning points to winning a title, essentially an alphabet title, there are more titles to fight for and win in the four belt era than was the case in, say, 1960. But assigning points for Hall of Famers discriminates against the 2008 and 2012 classes, which haven't had time to have have Hall of Famers inducted. Um, So it's all a little bit of back and forth. I recognize there's a little bit of inherent unfairness. And I did deal with the Hall of Fame issue somewhat. I allowed myself to give extra points to anyone from 2008 and 2012 who I considered a likely future Hall of Famer based on what they've done so far. Um, They don't get the full Hall of Fame amount, but I gave them a couple of extra points. Um, Also, you don't get points for every one of those achievements, right? So Muhammad Ali and Floyd Mayweather got the maximum points for being all-time greats. They don't also get points for all the stuff that made them all-time greats. Like, you don't get extra points for Hall of Fame or all of that. So you get point for one thing, you get your maximum points for one particular category is how it all works. Okay, so. I think I follow this. Right. Uh, sounds like it's you, you made you made a bit of, you made a science out of it, but it's not. It's an inexact science. A highly inexact science. Okay. Hashtag boxing. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, anyway, here's what we came up with. Uh, we actually, with terms of points, had a tie for fourth place, uh, but I resolved that by giving force to the team that I thought had the single biggest star. Um, and as a result of that, in fifth place is 1992. Uh, and who have we got here on the 1992 list? Oscar De La Hoya, obviously, 
Hall of Famer and arguably an all-time great. Uh, we have Vernon Forrest, who is a lineal 154-pound champion. Tim Austin was in there. Raul Marquez, Chris Bird, Montel Griffin, all won titles. Uh, Eric Griffin fought for one. Not necessarily spectacular grouping, but a really solid one. Uh, Tim Austin, our friend Raul, Chris Bird in particular, had really solid championship-level careers with some really notable wins. And, of course, Oscar De La Hoya basically carried boxing on his back for several years. Uh, for me, the 1992 class comes in in fifth place. Uh, that's interesting. So using my total, totally non-scientific method of just uh, making judgments by looking at all the names and trying to figure out uh, where I would rank them, um, I had them fourth. So we're, we're pretty ah. close here uh, in, in the ballpark on, on that one. And, yeah, it's interesting that beyond Oscar, who was obviously the clear superstar of that group, you had a bunch of guys who I think should at least get their names on the Hall of Fame ballot, even if they're never going to get voted in. Forrest, yeah. Bird, Austin, those are all guys who deserve to at least have their names on the ballot, I would think. Agreed. Uh, in fourth place, it's the one team where I felt looking at it that maybe the way that I had assigned points sort of broke very much in its favor here. And that's the 1996 card. Um, you could argue that this is the one class where giving boxes points for winning alphabet titles, even when they weren't undisputed or lineal, distorts the picture a little. Because there are quite a few in this group who are good, but not necessarily very good. I'm thinking of Eric Morrell, David Diaz, David Reed in particular, um, Zahir Rahim and Roshi Wells will never be considered great, but they did get points for fighting for belts. Um, Antonio Tarver and Fernando Vargas also won titles, and they're not exactly Hall of Famers, but they'll certainly be remembered as very good fighters, at least. The cream of this crop, of course, that really carries them through is arguably the greatest boxer of his generation, Floyd Mayweather Jr., whose uh, maximum points lift this class up a notch. All right, so I I am now suspecting that our lists, even though you used uh, some science and some numbers and I didn't, our lists are going to look pretty similar because I had these guys at number five. Uh, so okay. I did, we just flip-flopped each other's uh, four and five here, and obviously you had them uh, a tie until you came up with a tiebreaker. So uh, yeah, yep. we're pretty much uh, in, in lockstep here. Looking at the back at the list of names on that 96 team, it was uh, deeper than I had remembered in terms of how many of those guys went on to have at least a pretty solid pro career. Yeah. All right. That's interesting that if we work out uh, something similar. And third place, I have 1976. Uh, two Hall of Famers from this class, uh, Michael Spinks and, of course, Sugar Ray Leonard, who gets extra points for being an all-time great. Uh, Leon Spinks was briefly the heavyweight champion of the world. He gets points for that, even if the rest of his career in totality was far from memorable. Uh, Big John Tate briefly held a world heavyweight belt before losing it in a classic to Mike Weaver. Leo Randolph held an alphabet title. Howard Davis Jr. and Louis Curtis fought for one. Pretty decent class, even if Leonard is the very obviously dominant one. All right. And uh, so we continue our trend of <laughs> same, well, same, same years, same teams making the list, but not the exact same spots. I had these guys at number two, although it occurs okay. to me that I may have been giving them a little bit of that they're an iconic Olympic team. Uh, gotcha. A little, a little extra bounce for that, and maybe if I really examine their pro careers a little more carefully, uh, I would have them in the same spot as you. But I had them one spot higher at number two. Okay, in second place, and I wasn't expecting this, is 1988. Mm -hmm. uh, Roy Jones Jr., obviously the main man here and an all-time great, but two other members of this class wound up in the Hall of Fame: Michael Carbajal and Riddick Bowe. Uh, so that's three Hall of Famers in this class. Uh, we also have Kennedy McKinney and Ray Mercer in there who held belts. Anthony Hembrick, who I remember just being a mainstay on Tuesday Night Fights, um, and Romales Ellis. Uh, but yeah, Jones really leads the pack here. Carbajal and Bowe, solid second stringers. And Mercer and, and McKinney, I think in particular, likely to long be remembered as, as good competitors uh, in very good fights. So I was a little surprised about that. But as I look at it, I think, yeah, that's valid. That's a pretty solid class. Yeah, it, it's a hell of a team. And I'll also throw in, I don't think you mentioned Arthur Johnson, another guy who had a pretty good pro career coming out of that team. So uh, yeah, they were the one that I had at number three, flip-flopped with <laughs> 76. But as you list all those names, it may have been a deeper team that, that actually did accomplish more in total as pros. It's just, I guess, there's nobody quite, you know, if we wanted to go with the singular superstar sort of thing, were it a tie, you might give Ray Leonard the, the Floyd Mayweather type of edge over Roy sure. Jones in this case. But uh, yeah, these, these are pretty close. And uh, once again, we're more or less on the same page. And I think 
I know who you have at number one. Yeah, there's no question at all we're going to be on the same page here. I think it's the one that would immediately occur to immediately occurred to me when you gave me the list, and you do you turn math on it, and it's exactly what you would expect. <laughs> uh, 1984, obviously. Um, and you know, you sort of said it shouldn't be based on what they did as Olympians, but what they did as pros. This team did both. Right. I mean, holy moly! Not only did the 1984 team clean up at the Olympics, uh, most of them went on to have stellar pro careers. Van der Holyfield and Pernell Whitaker are clear all-time greats. Virgil Hills in the hall. Frank Tate, Mark Breel, and Bernard Taylor all held titles. Tyrell Biggs and Paul Gonzalez fought for titles. When we talk of the glory days of the U.S. Olympic boxing, we're really talking about 1984. Mm -hmm. This team dominated at the games and was largely fantastic in the paid ranks. Yep, uh, 100% agree. This does have to be number one, even if some people, uh, their memories might play tricks on them to the point that if they were around as kids in 76, they think of that as the mm. the elite Olympic team. When you really look at the depth of talent, it's it's got to be 84 with all those names that you mentioned. And it, it occurs to me with us both having the same uh, teams in our respective top fives, even if not the same order, they're all between 76 and 96 those 20 years that's really the golden age of of u.s olympic boxing yeah yeah absolutely uh i had a few reasonably close honorable mentions those five really did separate themselves i thought from the rest but the ones that were somewhat closer than the others uh, the 1980 team that didn't get to participate in the games did include the likes of richie sandoval hall of famer donald curry and johnny bumpus uh And on my point system, it tied for sixth with 2012, which may yet be looked back on very favorably indeed. A reminder of who is in that 2012 team. Roche Warren, Jojo Diaz, Jose Ramirez, Jamel Herring, Errol Spence, Terrell Gaucher, Michael Hunter, and Dominic Brazil. That's a really good team. Um, Its points total would have been higher if Ramirez had been able to overcome Josh Taylor. Spence is the one guy I gave extra points to as a likely Hall of Famer. Yep. Do it again in 10 years, you'll get the extra points as an actual Hall of Famer. Um, that 2012 team may end up holding up very favorably indeed. Um, I had 2004 coming up next. That was really boosted by the presence of Andre Ward, uh, followed by 2008 and 2000, which are kind of limping along, bringing up the rear, being lapped by the field. <laughs> um, were 1968, 1960, and 1964 uh, which basically had George Foreman, Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, and not much else. All right. And way at the bottom was 1972, uh, whose who's singular you know, pro was light heavyweight titleist Marvin Johnson, a very good light heavyweight titleist, but was really the one standout there. You know, you mentioned that that 76 to 96 window was, was the key. I think that surprised me a little bit. I, I think I was surprised at how few members of the Olympic team went on to good pro careers before that, right. particularly because we think of Ali and Frazier and Foreman, and we think, oh, my God, three of the greatest heavyweights of all time. The rest of the teams must have been fantastic. And they weren't. A lot of them didn't even turn pro. And then even though it's kind of declined since that peak year, then suddenly you have a year like 2012 that, you know, it look, might be looked at quite favorably. So it, the pattern was a little different than I'd expected going in, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think we actually have more variation outside the top five in terms of uh, okay. my my non-scientific method versus the way that you did things. The one team that I, I guess I had a lot higher than you uh, was the 2008 team. Um, I was kind of surprised by how close this came to making my top five. But looking back at Deontay Wilder, Demetrius Andrade, Miss... Gary Russell Jr., even though he didn't actually fight in the Olympics, he went. Um, Saddam Ali, Rushi Warren, whose name pops up over and over when you're looking at these Olympic teams. Um, But 2008 was a a better team uh, than I realized, in part because I think coming out of the Olympics, you wouldn't have guessed that Deontay Wilder was going to go on to have the career that he's had. Um, And and I put that 1960 team higher just because it had Muhammad Ali, Ali, even though there was like nothing else without using points. That one felt... Uh, like it should be pretty close to the top five. Um, but uh, 2012, like you, I had I had pretty high up there, too. Um, I, I was maybe a little lower on 2004. Uh, I Other than Andre Ward, that's been a really disappointing team in the pros for the most part. And I was also lower on 2000, uh, where Jermaine Taylor, Jeff Lacey, Rocky Juarez, Brian Valoria, not a single great 
pro among them. Right. Um, right. Possibly the only team since 76 that won't end up having a single Hall of Famer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right that it was really interesting to look at some of those 60s, early 70s teams and realize there's one super duper star and nobody else amounted yeah. to much at all in the pros. 72, I guess it wasn't just Marvin Johnson. He was certainly the best of the team, but Sugar Ray Seals, Dwayne Bobbick, yeah. like a couple of names that you remember, but still, yeah. No, no, no I, yeah, I was surprised. I thought, I looked at that list. I got, oh, Sugar Ray Seals, Dwayne Bobbick, they've got to be good. And then I looked at their pro careers and I thought, oh, they didn't do as much as I thought they did. <laughs> right, right. They were just very is, contenders. Yeah, Bobbick is definitely remembered as like one of the all-time great white hype bust type of type of fighters uh you know had a decent pro career but not what was expected for him and i guess same for yeah. sugar ray seals so uh yeah uh all, all in all we landed in uh, pretty similar places on this so there you go so there you must have a very mathematically inclined mind because there you go you basically <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm 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 now picturing myself with the uh, beautiful mind chalkboard numbers spinning <laughs> that whole gif whatever it is yes that's that's what happens time, without me even using math. There was a time when I was sitting here with my with my little scoring list and everything, thinking I am putting way too much effort into this, but it was a lot of fun to do it. I'm way. picturing you sliding over little discs on an abacus. <laughs> there you go, exactly. All right, that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks very much again to Tom Shrek for putting time aside to talk with us. Uh, we will be back next week with a preview of the August 14th Showtime Championship Boxing Card featuring Guillermo Rigandau versus John Riel Casemiro. And the money punch should return on Friday as well. Uh, until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.